Hi, and welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes. This is the podcast for training business owners all around the world, people like you and I. And each week we have one of two kinds of episodes. Either it's an episode where I'm talking about a specific topic of, of interest and hopefully of benefit to you. But this week we have a wonderful guest on the show. And not just any guest, but the co-founder of one of London's most iconic, successful training brands. Her name is Joe Ellen of Impact Factory. And if you've flown BA or British Airways in the last number of years, at some point you may very well have picked up a copy of BA's in-flight business magazine. And somewhere in there, you may have come across an advertisement about Impact Factory. And that's really what brought me to contact Jo Ellen and to invite her on the show. And I'm really, really grateful that she did, because as you'll hear, this is a wonderful story of success in the face of adversity. If persistence is a virtue, Jo Ellen and her co-founder, Robin Chandler, are its personification. This is episode 35 of the podcast. Thanks for your time today. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Welcome to the show. As I said before the music, this is the podcast for training business owners around the world. And today we have a guest on the show. It's a fantastic story all about the, the origins of one of London's most successful training business brands. That's Impact Factory. They offer a range of courses, open courses, tailored courses, and what they call elite courses to some of the biggest brands in the world, including BP, NetApp, uh, British Telecom, Raytheon, DHL, Pfizer, and many more, as well, of course, as serving programs to the public sector. It has an enviable reputation for high-impact communication skills training, and we're speaking with its co-founder today, that's Joe Ellen Grzib, and I'm Really, really delighted to have had this opportunity to to learn from someone like Joe Ellen. The story is both instructional, but also really, really inspirational. And I think you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Joe Ellen, good afternoon and welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Mark. Thank you. You're a co-founder of Impact Factory in London, together with Robin Chandler, which you started in, in 1991, um, working with clients such as Chanel, Bloomberg, and Coca-Cola. What prompted you to start a training business at that time? Good question. We were originally working for a, a more of a personal development organization, and I felt that we really could make an impact in the business world. Robin also felt that we could make an impact in the business world. And I had gone off and done a workshop with a Cherokee Indian in the Cascade Mountains of America uh, called Walking the Path of Power. And when I finished that, I thought, what am I doing with my life? I could be doing what I really want to, which is my own business. And so that's where it began. I, I just took a look and thought, the personal development work was wonderful, but I really felt that business could use what we had to offer. And did you have any background in training at that point in time? Oh, yes. I was running training courses. I was running something that people came to at 7, to, seven o'clock in the morning 
to kind of get their lives back on track and to fulfill their purpose. So the basis of, of the way um, I looked at what training could be, I had been doing for a number of years, as had Robin, plus he was teaching acting. And, um, and so we combined what, what we have, the skills that we had. I'm a psychotherapist, he's an actor, and we thought we have something more we could do here with people than kind of the normal kind of training, even the normal kind of personal development training. And, and that's how it evolved. There was something about what happens to people when they're under stress, um, what happens to people when they're called upon to do more, is the internal process for them. What stops you being effective? And for Robin's side, which was around behavior change, actors are brilliant at behavior change, and we felt that we could pull things from each of these disciplines and create something new and different which we did. And how did you know that you'd found the right person to, to start a business with in the form of Robin? I didn't, to be perfectly honest. Um, I happened to go to the office. Robin was there. There was one other person who joined us for a while until he realized how hard it was to start a business. And I said, I'm handing in my resignation. I'm going to set up my own business. And um, Robin said, well, would you think about having partners? And I said, with you or without you, I'm going to do it. We barely knew each other, but I think that what set what did it for us is that when we began to look at how we wanted to work, that our values were very, very similar. And if you met the two of us, you would think, why are these two people together? I mean, we are a bit like chalk and cheese, but when it comes to the big issues and when it comes to how we develop the company, we have always been in agreement. And that, I think, has to do with our personal values and our the way we look at the world. I'm curious, how did you actually meet then in the first place? Oh, we met at this other organization. He was already running um, acting classes and workshops, and I was developing workshops. So um, we knew each other slightly. Um, so we already had something in common, which was that we loved personal development, and we both felt... Uh, that business would benefit from what we had to offer. We, we were trying to do it within the organization that we were both al aligned with at that point, but they weren't particularly interested in going into the business world. So that was what brought us together as well, that we both felt there was something important that we could bring. And speaking of uh, the business world, which you've just mentioned, you've because we've talked um, before this uh, recording today, you've, you've been through some pretty tough times uh, 9-11, the recession of 2008, and currently uh, the uncertainty of Brexit, which is still unwinding or rather revealing itself at the time of recording. So you, you, yours is a story of resilience. How have events like these affected your business and how has the business responded? Well, they've, they've affected it adversely initially. Um, and we would, we, I was just talking to my marketing director for, just before this um, about you know, necessity being the mother of invention. And I think when you go through hard times, you either fold or you do something differently. And I think that each time that we've been hit by some kind of crisis that we didn't create, um, we've, in a sense, reinvented ourselves. And I don't mean we've changed who we are, but we've often changed what we do. And um, I think the big turning point after 9-11, when we lost all our major clients in one go, Wow. Was um, that 
at that point, Robin and I were doing the client meetings, the proposal writing, and most of the delivery. We had some people who could deliver our work in the way that we wanted to. But after that, we thought, if we're going to grow the business so that we're not reliant on three major clients, then we need to be freed up to do that. And we needed to get other people in to do what we did. So that's when we began our training program and that we train our own trainers. So in some ways, 9-11 was hideous because just for what it was, but also for what it did to the business. On the other hand, um, I don't think we'd be here now in the way that we are if we had carried on at that point in the way that we did. So we used it to our benefit. Um, and we were quite bold. I mean, we had to remortgage our properties and we had to do a lot of things, you know, belt tightening, not taking any money from the business for half a year. Um, but what it also did was to get to clarify what we really wanted and to continue doing it and to be bold in that we did a marketing campaign when everyone else was under the parapet. We thought we're sticking our heads over the parapet. We're going to do a big marketing campaign. So at some point, all the companies who had fled and stopped doing training um, would eventually realize they have to do more training and we would be there. So that mm-hmm. worked for our benefit. It did take six months, however. Adding to that then, of course, the recession of 2008. Oh, yes. The recession. Well, that literally wiped away a third of our business, which was local authority. Um, we had a wonderful relationship with local authorities, and we really liked the work because we could see the difference it made uh, because we often did rollouts within some of the local authorities we worked with. And because of the recession and then uh, the impact of austerity, we hardly do any local authority training now. And it's um, so we've lo- we lost a market overnight. And uh We also lost a lot of trainers who felt that they needed to leave and go elsewhere. And um, again, we reinvented ourselves or reinvented the way we work um, with our clients and with our trainers. And we asked the staff to take a pay cut. Once again, Robin and I didn't take any money um, for six months. Everyone took a pay cut so everyone was equal. Um, in the fact that we were all handling the burden so that we could stay alive. We had a fantastic, and I have to say twice, both for 9-11 and, and for the financial meltdown, we did have a wonderful bank manager who was extremely supportive and helpful. Um, so again, it was resilience. It was knowing we would survive yet again. Um, and it was harder, I think, the the financial meltdown in an odd way than 9-11 because, number one, trainers left and some of them took our biggest clients. And that was difficult. And it it sort of felt unfair. I know that sounds so immature. But it was like, we didn't do this to ourselves. We didn't create this. We weren't part of the whole thing. And so there was something you know, we had to get over ourselves. But um, what it did in an odd way is it made Robin and I much stronger together. Uh, I think that, again, we looked at what it felt like to, um, in a sense, be betrayed and, and still know that we had wonderful work to do in the world. And 
So if I looked at anything positive, um, it strengthened the relationship we had with the trainers who stayed, and it strengthened our relationship. How would you feel you would respond if that were to happen again today, whereby a trainer or a collective of trainers within your training faculty try to poach a client? Do you feel you're in a better position as to what to do about that preemptively and and reactively? Yes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'd be very disappointed reactively. Certainly, we put a lot more processes in place. I think that um, Robin and I really liked a quite a loose arrangement with people. We liked um, our freelance trainers to feel that they weren't tied to us, and they're not because they are freelance. But I think there was something a little more relaxed, and now we're not as relaxed. The client we have, you know, contracts and agreements and protocols and um, things that we didn't have in place before. We got, we hired in, um, you know, an HR expert and another consultant to put things in place that we hadn't felt were necessary before. Okay, that's what we do now. So um, that's fine. Uh, I think that most of our trainers are extremely loyal to who we are and what we do. And they've invested two years of their lives. If a collective of people poached our clients, we would deal with it. I think we're, we're very pragmatic as an organization, uh, certainly Robin and I are, that we deal with what comes along. And now that we're in our 28th year, we will be 28 in April. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you very much. We have been through a lot. We've learned a lot. And we do kind of flow with the punches. You know, it's just the way it works for us. Um, We're still quite relaxed. um, But I think overall we're... um, we we rely on ourselves. I think there's this inner core that each of us have and a lot of the people around us that will find a way. Um, we're, we're struggling. Well, we're not struggling at the moment in terms of Brexit, but we did after the vote. Um, we went off a little Brexit cliff, as I called it. And uh, business does not like uncertainty. And it's like, okay, batten down the hatches cancel training because we don't know if we can afford it. Training is often the first thing that goes. And um, we did have some of our bigger clients sort of go, oh, no, we're canceling everything. So we found that because we have two sides to the business, we have the tailored work and we have our open courses, our public courses that anyone from any place can come to. And so we found that our open course work began to increase as our um, tailored work began to decrease. So we put a lot more effort into developing the open courses in case the same thing happens now, since nobody knows. I mean, right now, knock on wood, we are doing well. Um, uh, but I think that because we have no idea what's going to happen on March 29th, if anything is going to happen, we've We've again, I, I would say it's not reinvention, but it's like, okay, we, we know that our tailored work is doing well. Let's put our efforts and our budget into the open courses because people in a time of difficulty might send some key people on individual courses 
rather than I'm going to book this entire department or team onto a tailored piece of work. Right. So you open or you offer open courses and tailored courses, which you mentioned, and you're, you're quite open about the pricing because that's visible on your website. Uh, you're not hiding it. Um, you're quite open about that. And I've also seen that you offer something called elite courses. Uh, you know, what is the market for a five-day program like your elite course? And how do you actually fill those? We fill them from people all over the world. I mean, we're, you know, we say, I mean, the next one, which is starting next Monday, we have someone from Saudi Arabia, someone from The Hague, uh, someone from Mozambique, someone from Canada, someone from the U.S., even a couple of Brits in there. So they're pulled from all over the world. Um, people like coming to London. They like coming to what they recognize will be their peer group. Our elite courses tend to be for people who are going to the next step. And the next step right. could be becoming, you know, the head of an entire, you know, global market, or it could be that they're heading a new branch or a new department. But it's always people who are stepping up. Right. So are you saying that um, the elite courses are literally for those who qualify for that course? It's not for any course or anyone that wants to take part, but there's almost um, a qualification before someone can actually take part in that course. Is that right? No, not really. Uh, what, that's just what we found over the years, that that's who comes. No, anyone can come. Um, they're not inexpensive. Um, so you usually have people who are, their companies are willing to invest that amount of money. We have occasionally had individuals who had their own freelance business who say, no, this is really worth my personal investment. Um, so no, it's just that, well, if we were to talk about a profile, it's people who are going to the next level, whatever that next level might be. Right. And in terms of attracting people like that, uh, generating customers, you have two generation approaches or business generation approaches, which in my understanding have, have really paid off. And that's advertising in BA's in-flight magazine, which is actually where I came across your brand uh, many times a couple of years in a row. Um, and of course, uh, through Google ads, which is online advertising. Let's talk about those and, and how you feel they have helped the business. Well, um, the BA ads, and we're actually looking at some other airlines as well at the moment. Um, what's great is they're a captive audience. So uh, if you're on a flight that's more than three hours, you'll have read the magazine very quickly. You might have taken a nap. You might have something on your laptop or your iPad to watch a film. And then you go through the magazine again. And that's usually the second time round is when yes. you'll, notice the mag you'll notice the ad, which are very colorful and eye-catching. And um, so we do get uh, a lot of interest through that, uh, through the ad. And we like the idea of a captive audience. And it's usually, because it's in the business life section, um, people have their business hats on. It's not some of the in-flight magazines you'll see are more for the leisure traveler. Um, that's not our audience. It might be. There might be a crossover, but really we want someone who's, while they're flipping through, you know, a business magazine, they do have their business hat on or the business brain is a, a slightly attuned. Um, so that is proving really worth the investment. And as I say, we're now investigating um, some long haul airline, you know, flights. Those are for short haul flights, the one we do with BA. Um, but now we're 
looking to see some of the long haul flights and see how that pans out. The Google ads, um, that's sort of like our own little army of Google experts because we have our marketing director, we have Robin, and we have an outsourced company, an SEO company, all strategically, tactically looking at the Google ads every day, every hour of every day. I mean, it is a mammoth job because you take a look at how many clicks this have got, got and how much follow through has been done. Was it a click and then the visit to the page and then a booking or was it a click and then going away and then coming back? It is kind of scary the amount of information that you can glean now from people who visit your website. And coming back to the, the BA magazine thing for a moment, you were, I presume, well, my impression was one of the first to do that, to take that particular approach. Was that kind of virgin territory at the time, putting a, a full page ad? We have been approached by everybody and every organization, advertise, advertise, advertise. And we said, no, um, because we knew it's a very expensive um, proposition and you have to do it continually. But with BA, um, we have loyalty. We felt a lot of loyalty to BA. They were a client of ours for a long time. And uh, we kind of know them. And even though it was an agency that we, we deal with, um, we thought it's worth a punt. We could do it month by month rather than sign a full year contract just to, to start out and see what it felt like. And it also helped us become more creative in terms of our, you know, since we didn't advertise other than in Google ads, we didn't know that what well, our marketing manager did. Um, so we created ads that had punch and, and were attractive and expressed who and what we are very quickly. Uh, so that's also what paid off, that we felt good about what we were presenting to the public. So in a way, that, that's something which you never really, um, in a way, it, that kind of opportunity presented itself uh, have there been business opportunities which you have consciously turned down over the years and said, we're not doing that, not right, doesn't fit with our values or culture? And, and what was the reasoning or logic behind those decisions? Um, many, actually. And um, we even train our trainers to turn down work. Oh. And when we, <laughs> it's like we give them permission, basically. So if they go to a client meeting, and this was something that Robin and I experienced, um, we went to two that I can remember, and I will not tell you who the clients were or the potential clients, but Robin and I have a little bit of ESP sometimes, mind reading, because we we are so adept at working with each other. But I remember one client, we thought we hated the way that they talked about their employees, and we thought they were talked about disrespectfully, they were um, minimized. Uh, they wanted us to fix them. And this was a very large multinational company. And I just said, you know, I closed my notebook and I said, I think we're the wrong company for you. And we just got up and left. Wow. And we did that twice, again, with another multinational company. And it was for the same reason. Um, so I think a theme, and for those trainers who you know, who go to client meetings and think, actually, this isn't going to work. It is usually the attitude that the, the bookers, you know, the people who are buying the training have about the people who are going to receive the training. And 
um, it's fine to say, you know, there's a problem here and we need it fixed. Because even though we don't do fixing, that's the language and that's fine. But it was more, it is more, do you like the people who work for you? <laughs> really, is, is sort of the bottom line. So that's one area that we just, if we feel that, um, that the employees aren't being respected, uh, it feels like a, a fix, feels like go in and do something to them and make them better. And the other thing is uh, where we turn down work as if, it, if the task is impossible. If we feel that, you know, you want a half day training and you want all these people to become presentation experts, it's not going to happen that way. Um, so, and the, and the third thing I would say would be tick the box exercise. We're just going through the motions. We don't really care what you do, but we care and we care about the people in the room. So um, that's the, I would say the third reason why we turned down work. And then part of that success, of course, is the 27 trainers you have uh, in your team. Um, and of course, they have been a fundamental part of the recipe of success at Impact Factory. And you've explained to me before that it takes two years to train one of your trainers to the point where you feel they get what you're about and they have the brand at heart and they can be put on front of clients. That's quite a long time. Why do you feel it, it takes so long two years before someone really understands and embodies Impact Factory? Um, I love that question. Uh, one is that it's not full time. It's a day a week. So <laughs> it's not like someone is here all the time. Um, anyone can learn a process. There are fantastic trainers out there. And I've done training that isn't our training where people are charismatic and they're exciting and they're interesting in front of a room. So it isn't about how well you understand process and what it's supposed to do or can think of a new game or a new energizer or a new way to wrap up a day, but it is the ability to read the people in the room so that if you've worked very hard on creating a program for a client and you go into the room and it's completely irrelevant or it's not as relevant as it needs to be for what the delegates need, you have to have the capacity to create in the moment. You have to have the, the capacity to change an exercise midway when you see this isn't landing. I'm going to have it do something else. So that's where the real skill is. It's to see what people need and adapt the work to fulfill that need rather than just running a program. I, not just. That's not fair. But we don't run programs. We adapt work to the people in the room. And you, you mentioned as well the importance of skill sets like improvisation and that you'd like your trainers to have some kind of maybe, well, ideally take in an improv class or have some kind of background or understanding of counseling principles. Yes. So what we look for is um, most of our trainers have a theatrical background. So if they haven't done a lot of therapy themselves or a foundation course in counseling, we really encourage them to get that background. And the same thing for the counselors or the therapists who apply to work with us. We say, you're going to need to, you know, do an acting class, a series of improv courses, just something where you get the combination so that, um, because often the the therapist counselor aren't as outspoken or 
zhuzhi or energetic as the actors. So they just need to get some of that injected into them. We also run improv. Uh, we have a, a brilliant woman, um, Maria Peters, who runs an improv school and is a brilliant improviser. And so she'll do a session a couple of times a year. So we all get refreshed with what's going on in the improv world. Um, so the combination is ideal. And we do get people who have both skills. But if they don't, if people come in with strong in one area, a little bit weak in another. I mean, there are, there are four criteria that we ask for. Some kind of drama-based background, theatrical background, some kind of psychotherapy, counseling, or having done therapy yourself. Um, some awareness that there is a business world out there and that they are just people, but they are in a very specific world. And the fourth is an ability to work with groups. So, um, if you haven't, if you don't come in with all four, part of the two-year training period is to help you um, look at the areas where you might be less um, adept. Right, and, and do you find that it's it's tough to find people with that combination of skill sets? Because I think something el else you mentioned when we last spoke was, uh, um, you know, I suppose maturity—the fact that people. You know, aren't just someone who uh, who's rattling off something they've learned on a course, but that they actually carry some kind of weight uh, and, and understanding of human experience within them. If that makes sense. Yes, I mean, we want. I mean, we're reverse ageist. I would say um, it's very hard to get in here if you're young. Uh, you can be younger than me. I'm 71, but um, uh, we want people with some life experience. Um, maybe have changed careers two or three times. So, you know, had some hard knocks so that they come in with a lot of empathy. So um, we actually, a lot of people apply to work here. Um, at the moment, we're not looking for anybody because the last cohort that we were training up, most of them have actually sort of graduated into the company. So, because um, often that doesn't happen. Often we might get one person from a cohort and, you know, we'll start again or we'll, you know, we're, as one cohort is midway through, we start another one. But uh, we have a lot of very good people at the moment and um, we're ha very happy. So it may be not till next year that we look at training up some new people because also you just don't know what happened, you know, what might happen. One of our most experienced trainers and who's been with us the longest uh has half her life is in um, the in the American Virgin Islands because that's where her husband is, um, and she wasn't expecting to get married. She wasn't expecting any of that. You know, she was here. She was around the corner, and now she comes. You know, for three weeks every six weeks. So who knows what's going to happen? So we we do like to know that um, as people move up the food chain, as it were that eventually there will be at some point another group um, that will be started, but probably not till next year. You've said that um, inertia, and I like this quotation, um, you've said that inertia doesn't work for us. Uh, wh what did you mean by that exactly? Well, Ro Robin said something way long time ago when we first, not quite first started, but maybe in the first five or six years, he said, if it looks the same in six months time as it does now, we're doing something wrong. Now, what he means by that is that we need to be upgrading. We need to be creating a new course or refreshing a course or re-looking at our website 
or maybe we need a new employee. Something needs to be different. And I think that we don't rest on our laurels. It's a continual development process because we're in a way we're mirroring what we're asking people to do, which is to, even though people have come for sort of soft business skills, we call ourselves professional personal development because you can't develop a skill that you'll use if you're not developing the whole person. So we think that we believe whatever that term is, continuous learning and continuous development is sort of how Impact Factory works. We are continually developing ourselves. And it means that we're, you know, listening to hundreds of TED Talks, reading books. We have a library and we have, you know, oh, everyone should read this book. Okay, everyone read the book or those who are interested. So there's always something where we're upgrading and doing some things a little bit different. And so I think when, when you talk about inertia, inertia is kind of, oh, we're there. Okay, we're done now. Well, we're never done. And speaking of the future, have you actual definitive plans? I mean, I, I can get from the, the conversation we're having, there's a little bit of let's wait and see what happens. But where would you like Impact Factory to be in, I'm not going to give you a number, but let's say X number of years time. And how do you plan to get there? Um, uh, doing more of the same. I would love to see uh, our elite courses run more often. There are Communicate with Impact is run four times a year and Presentation with Impact three. I would love one of those a month. So I think that our putting effort into the elite courses, um, they're fun for the delegates. The trainers love running them because you get to know people at a much deeper level. So there's that side of things that I would love elite courses. We have the capacity right now to double the number of open courses. So I would like to see even in two years time that we're doing double the amount of open courses um, that we do now. And uh, the tailored work, if I were looking at well, how I would like to see the tailored work developing is to have more rollouts. Rollouts are great because the impact on an organization is greater than no, just, not just, stop using that term, Joellen, than doing a team. <laughs> there is something very satisfying um, about rolling out to most of the people in an organization and working with the senior leadership team that you know that there's been a real, genuine, deep-rooted impact um, on the business. And the other side that we're developing is more consultancy work. You know, we've seen ourselves as a training company that have brilliant consultants, but more and more people are saying, can you come in and not just do a training needs analysis, but actually look at the organization, spend a few days with us, talk to the senior people, talk to the junior people, talk to the receptionist, and give us some feedback on who we are and how um, we could change or improve. And we're not number crunchers. We're not you know, the big guys um, who are going to be looking at an organization from that point of view, we are actually going in and looking at from the human point of view. And I think that um, we, are, we talk in, internally <coughs> sorry, about the future of work as human. That's our current tagline um, because there's so much investment in technology. But I think across the board, people are recognizing that the technology is great, fabulous. We couldn't do be doing this if we didn't have technology, but that if there's too much of an emphasis on it, you lose the skills and the uh, talents that people have. 
So more and more, I would love to see that the idea of soft skills training is just taken for granted. We have to do it. It's, I don't have to convince anybody that's a good idea. In 28 years, that's probably the biggest change is that we had to convince people to do training. You know, it wasn't just going to client meetings and saying, yes, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. We would have to say, this is why you have to do this. And more and more, we don't have to explain the why. People get it. People get that um, training is important. And it's important on many levels. It's, It's important, number one, that people have skills like line management. You're a line manager. You've been thrown in the deep end. You don't know what to do. Coming on a two-day line management course will give you the, a lot of basic skills that will be very helpful. It's confidence building, and people need confidence at work. It also helps their personal development, and people are impatient to develop, um, and training is a way to develop. And I, it was years and years and years ago, uh, long before the recession, that I think it was Vauxhall who um, said people got budgets to do some kind of development work and they didn't care what it was. Take ballroom lessons, you know, take swimming lessons, go on a training course, but do something that develops you. And they were considered, you know, God, look what they're doing. But I think now, and it's great that it's changed that much that soft skills are recognized as important. On the subject of soft skills, you've written a book called The Nice Factor. Are you too nice for your own good? Uh, Interesting title. Um, And you've written more than one book. Has that helped in any way in terms of brand awareness of Impact Factory? Is this more of a personal interest that you have? The Nice Factor came out of, um, well, it came out of Robin and I being too nice for our own good. Um, And it is now what we call assertiveness, but it, it's still the nice factor. And so I think that's helped a little bit. These, the other book I wrote, which is Family Heaven, Family Hell, How to Survive the Family Get-Together, that's a Joellen book, and it's not based <laughs> on our work. It's just based on family stuff. Um, and uh, I don't think they've had big impact. It's just nice to have written books. I love to write. It's what I think I was put on the planet to do. So do you see yourself uh, spending any more time in writing books? Have you maybe a title in mind at some point? I would love to write. I think that I've spent a huge amount involved in the development of the business. And so I'm here a lot. For writing, I like to go away and squirrel myself away and um, write. So it's finding the time, and I haven't got that just at the moment. The lovely thing about writing is that you can be whatever age to write. Um, It's not like I have to do a young person's job. Um, So I do have, I would, there's a book around communication and the way that people miscommunicate. We pinched this years and years ago. We did some work for BT, and they had a a phrase that said, miscommunication is the norm. Um, And their project never got off the ground, but we have pinched it and used it all the time about how miscommunication happens more than you think. And uh, I would love to write a book on that. Um, And also uh, one of the foundations of our work is what we call strengths-based training. And it is about working with people's strengths. And I would like to write a book around um, knocking on the head the idea that you need to improve by finding out what's wrong with you and what you need to fix 
rather than what's right with you and develop that. So as a, as a final uh, comment today, I'm thinking of the 28 years of experience that you have in the training business, and that is no mean achievement, Joellen. Congratulations in advance again of the anniversary in April. Um, which number one tip would you give to a training business owner or someone who's building a training business or thinking of doing such a thing, embarking on such an endeavor, and, and they want to maybe take some of the lessons and experience on board and grow and scale. What, what number one tip would you give someone listening to the program? My absolute number one trip t- tip is flexibility and be willing to change things on a dime. I think when Robin and I, it's the one thing that we have consistently done. If something isn't working, chuck it out. Don't bash at it to get it to work change it. So I think there's something about just being flexible. Keep a hold of your values and your principles. That's We've never changed those in 28 years. We've added to them. We've not changed them. But it's that flexibility of go with what needs to happen rather than I'm fixed. This is it. That agility. I mean, we use that word a lot with other organizations. Be agile be flexible, and change on a dime. Wonderful. Joe Allen, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the program. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. They were great questions. Now, wasn't that the kind of story that gives you courage and inspiration? If building a business and keeping on in that business despite the odds is a lesson to us all, then I think both Robin and Joe Ellen's story has ticked all the boxes. So Joe Ellen, if you're listening, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing what is really uh, just a, a, a mind-boggling story of how you put together a business and even when things were stacked against you, you kept on going. And that's, of course, something which I think you will, in the audience, recognize as being a required strength to keep on keeping on even when things are not going our way you can tune in again next week and i hope you do the podcast is available as are all episodes both on itunes on stitcher and on spotify and i continue to welcome communication from you either via facebook or via email which is where most of the correspondence is coming from you can reach me on markghays at gmail.com And the kinds of suggestions that you have, well, those will be the basis for future episodes. So I welcome all the suggestions that you make because these will be the kinds of features or basis for uh, future episodes, the kinds that will help you and your peers and my peers in the training business community. So I look forward to your company again this time next week. Until then, have a wonderful training week. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.